0: Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Would you please turn to John chapter 1? Hopefully in a couple of weeks we'll be able to say John chapter 2. But until then, still John chapter 1. It's a very long chapter. 51 verses. So, <clears throat> we're almost there. This morning we are going to uh sort of wrap up what we began last week in what we called or entitled Behold the Lamb. And uh, because we went to the table of communion last week, uh, we read this portion and just kind of briefly commented on it, but I feel the need to uh, exposit this, this passage a little bit more. So let's look at verses 29 through 34 in our text. What we began was, uh, John the Apostle's, uh, presentation of, uh, of John the Baptizer or John the Baptist and his, uh, ministry, the calling that he had from God to be the, uh, the prophet that proclaims the coming of Messiah and the fulfillment of, of, uh, that prophecy in Isaiah that we touched on last week. So, in this passage here in verses 29-34, after John the Baptist has been questioned by the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem as to his ministry, as to what he was out doing, why he was doing it, who sent him, and all of those questions uh, that we dealt with last time, we're told that the next day... John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So, near the end of last week's study, I mentioned that the message of the Scriptures can be summed up in the title, The Lamb of God. In fact, it is the answer to the question asked by Isaac, the son of Abraham, on Mount Moriah. When Abraham had taken his son Isaac, not really a a young boy, but but a man, Took Isaac up to Mount Moriah, the place where God had commanded him to take him to sacrifice him there before God. Isaac asked the question, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Genesis 22, verse 7. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And I said that the answer to that question, of course, is in the statement of John, Behold, the Lamb of God. There he is. This is he. This is the one. This is the sacrifice. This is the Lamb of God. As we saw in our study last time, the day after John the Baptizer was questioned by the priests and Levites from Jerusalem as to who he was, it tells us in our text that John saw Jesus coming. And I considered this this little phrase as as I looked at it. I, I was fascinated by it. John saw Jesus coming. An impacting statement. might not be to you, but it was to me. John saw Jesus coming. It made me ask the question, what would I do if I saw Jesus coming? Would I proclaim him as who he is? To all those around me. As, by the way, we've already been called to proclaim him. John immediately proclaimed him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What will we do when we see Jesus coming? I think about those days and times when, are yet to be of course, after Jesus has come for his church, after Jesus has come and taken us home, And after the great tribulation period, the, 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 the great seven years of, of judgment that will take place on the on this earth, and Jesus comes with his saints, there's reference in the scriptures that those who see Jesus coming, some of course will weep, but there will be others who will turn their faces. I think of the times that we ourselves share the love of Christ with others or or talk to people about Jesus and how they turn away from him. What will we do when we see Jesus coming? We might be wondering that question ourselves because we don't know who Jesus is. It's quite possible that some of you may not know. I hope that before the end of this day you would. That you would truly know who Jesus Christ is. But how significant is the fact now as we go on in our study that Jesus Christ is not only the Word of God, that He's not only the Logos of God who became flesh and dwells among us, but He is also the Lamb of God. All the things that we've learned about Jesus so far in all these few weeks that uh, we've covered, just this first part of the chapter. The Word of God. The light the life of men the lamb of god and as we see in verse 34 the son of god but the lamb of god what a what a cherished and treasured symbol and type of jesus christ that is held by believers the lamb of god first of all the lamb is a is a picture the Lamb of God is a picture of Messiah, our Passover, who was sacrificed for us. Our Passover. Paul even references that for us in, in 1 Corinthians 5.7. He says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And Paul uses the issue of Passover... To talk about us as being unleavened, you know, that uh, we've been cleansed of, of all leaven and, and we're a new lump, uh, cleansed and, and purified by the Lord. But because of the Passover, who is our Christ, our Messiah, sacrifice for us. You see, historically, the Passover, which was explained wonderfully by Rich Freeman a few weeks ago, refers back to the time when the Lord delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. And you might want to read about that in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. But God had pronounced judgment. The taking of the firstborn upon the people of Egypt for their injustices against the children of Israel. And as he prepared to execute the final judgment, the faithful, those who believed in God, were instructed to slay a pure lamb and sprinkle its blood over the doorposts of their homes. The blood of the innocent lamb would then serve as a sign That the coming judgment had already been carried out. When seeing the blood, God would pass over that house. Those who believed God applied the blood to their homes and were saved. But those who did not believe did not apply the blood to their homes and their firstborn were destroyed. Symbolically, the Passover illustrated the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior. The lamb, you see, without blemish. It pictured his sinless life. And the blood sprinkled on the doorpost pictured his blood shed for the believer. It was a sign that the life and the blood of the innocent lamb had been substituted for the firstborn. The eating of the lamb. Signified the need for spiritual and, uh, spiritual nourishment gained by feeding on Christ. Which, who, who, who happens to be, by the way, the bread of life, we're told. And it is, it is in this gospel that we will see him proclaim himself as the bread of life. The nourishment of life. And the eating of the unleavened bread itself signified the need for putting evil out of one's life and household. All necessary symbols, all necessary signs and significance to the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Secondly, the Lamb is a picture of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which redeems us. And only by the blood of Christ can we be redeemed. This is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 when he says for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without spot or as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So again, now Peter is telling us here that the things that are, that that may be precious in this life or in this, in this world. How many people would say, you know, man, if I could just get my hand on some silver and gold, you know, I'll, I'll be set up for life, you know. We even have the commercials that tell us, listen, you need to invest in gold. Well, invest in gold if you want, but here's the thing. Silver and gold cannot redeem us. We can only be redeemed spiritually and for eternity through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. And here's another important point to consider. It wasn't the deed or the act of sacrificing the lambs that caused the Lord to remove the sins. It wasn't the doing of the deeds or it wasn't the acting on the deeds of sacrificing the lambs but the f- person's faith, the faith of the people in God's word, that he would remove the sins. Too often people get into this situation where they feel like if if they can just do things, you know, maybe, maybe this will please God. What pleases God is our faith in him and our trust in him. Some people might say, maybe if I go to church more often, maybe I'll I'll be better off later on. Or, the more I do good, you know, maybe my good can outweigh the bad, and then, you know, God will take note. We cannot please God by the things that we do. So it was very important for the people to do what God did, but to do it because they believed that God would remove sin, because of our faith, not because of what we did. And so Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God without sin, without blemish, without spot. He is the one upon whom the sins of the people were placed. He is the one who bore the judgment for sin, which was death. He is the one who was sacrificed for sin. He is the one whose death sets people free by redeeming them. And the one whose blood is counted precious both by God and by believers. It should also be noted that Jesus willingly offered himself as a sacrificial lamb. As our substitute and our sin bearer. He did it willingly. One thing that you can be assured of. And that is that Jesus did not bargain with his father. In any way shape or form he did not bargain with his father. I'll go if. I'll give up my life if. If this is something that we need to consider very strongly about that relationship between the father and the son how close that relationship was how precious that relationship was to combat this understanding uh, an idea that that some preachers and pastors in what is called the emerging church today are saying about this relationship between the, the God the father and God the son as one of the highlighted names of, of the emerging church. Brian McLaren has said in in, in in writings in his own books. Claiming that the father having a son to go and, 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 and give his life, you know, for is 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 subject to to being called uh, child abuse. He says this. It's crazy. And if you've been with, if you were with us about a little over a year ago when we had uh, uh, our, our White is a Gay conference here, these things were clarified. That these things are just unbiblical and heretical to think in this term. Jesus willingly gave his life, and God the Father willingly accepted the offering and sacrifice of His Son for us. Think about the statement that Jesus himself, you know, if these people would just read the Bible, maybe they would get the understanding. Jesus himself said this. He said in John 10 verses 17 and 18, Therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. In effect, nobody killed Jesus. Jesus gave his life. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And it pleased the Father. That the Son willingly gave himself. For us. And it ought to please us. We ought to be rejoicing in this. Not considering that God the Father is a, you know, a child abuser. What idiocy. Thirdly, consider if you will the phrase itself, the Lamb of God. Of, O-F, capital O-F. The Lamb of God. The idea is that the Lamb belonged to God, not to men. Too many men today want to dictate what Jesus should have done for us or what Jesus really did for us. No. He already gave his life and he took it again and he rose again and he has accomplished what we needed to have accomplished for us. Not because of what men had to say, but because of God giving him to us. God gave, God supplied, God provided the lamb for sacrifice, didn't he? Didn't he? Are you here this morning? Yes, okay. Now you've you got to be a little bit more awake than first service, because they were pretty awake this morning. All right. Y'all did change your clocks last week, right? Okay, just check it. God gave. God supplied. God provided the Lamb for sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. I mean, compare this now to Genesis 22, verse 8. Now this is the next verse after the question that Isaac asked. I see the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And here's the response. And Abraham said, My son, God, will provide himself a lamb. And that's a tremendous statement. God himself provided the lamb. But I, but I love the, the, the construction here uh, as we have it in the King James because it says God will provide himself a lamb. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see the Son, you see the Father. God provided himself a lamb for a burnt offering. This glorious truth speaks volumes on the amazing love of God for man. Someone asked me the question this morning, you know, where is that, that, that section in the scriptures where, where it tells us that the angels ponder Why God has such love for man. (laughs) And they do. They they wonder, Lord, why why do you love these people so much? Have you ever asked that about yourself? Lord, why do you love me so much? Because he does. Certainly it brings us to to this great verse of scripture we all should know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To ponder this one verse alone, that can can be done over hours and hours of time. When only thinking about what he did for you. Yet what he did in giving his only begotten son affects not just us individually, but everyone. Everyone. In this world, especially those who believe, because he says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think of this grand, uh, grand passage of Scripture in, 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 in Romans chapter five, where 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 Paul himself gives us a, a a great understanding of of the love of God as well. When he says, "Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, being justified by faith, not by works, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us." So. We've been justified by faith, and having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Do you have peace with God this morning? You see, because the peace that we should have with God is a peace that the world just doesn't understand. We sing a song based upon the statement of Jesus, as a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John. My peace, what Jesus has said to us, my peace I give unto you. It's a peace that the world cannot give. It's a peace that the world cannot understand. Peace to know, peace to live. My peace, I give unto you. So many people today are looking for some kind of peace, whether it is in a in a in lonely personal heart or or. Peace by nations as well. People want to live in peace. But there's so much distraction to peace today. So many hindrances to that kind of peace. But the peace of the world is not like this peace that God gives. Because it's a peace that is everlasting. Our hearts are restless until we come to Jesus Christ. It will always be that way. Our hearts will be restless until we come to Jesus Christ. And Paul says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have... We have already peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Grace, undeserved favor. If we are believers in Jesus Christ today, and he has changed us and made us new creatures in Christ, the old has passed away, behold, all things have become new. Then we stand upon this grace, this undeserved favor. Paul says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And this is a great verse of scripture to tie into what we've been studying so far about Jesus in the book of John, and the gospel of John chapter 1. Because we are told that the, the, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace, truth, glory, all wrapped up in Jesus and not only so but we glory in tribulations also now some people don't like this verse because we see the word tribulation we say oh here we go we're going to have to deal with tribulation in this life we all deal with tribulation in this life I'd like to meet anybody in this place who's never had any tribulation we've all had tribulation haven't we No one can raise their hand and say, I've never had tribulation. Yes, you have. As a matter of fact, you got up this morning, you looked in the mirror, and that was tribulation enough. (laughs) Scared yourself to death. Dear God, Jesus, take hold of me now. But we glory in tribulations. See, we can now understand this. We are in the peace of God. We are on the grace of God. We stand upon the undeserved favor of God. And we can glory in tribulations because we know that tribulation worketh or produces patience. And patience worketh and produces experience. And experience worketh and produces hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, keep this thought in mind in verse 6, because we're going to tie it into verse 8 in just a moment. But here it says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Which one of us in this room at any given time were never ungodly? We've all been ungodly. We were born in sin, therefore we were born in ungodliness. So when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet uh, perhaps or peradventure for, for a good man, some would even dare to die, but God commendeth his love toward us. Now what that really means here, I know that in some translations they say, but God demonstrated his love, it's a great word, demonstrated. But more literally, and more strongly, What it says is, but God exhibited, God exhibited his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And to look at these two verses, verses 6 and 8 together, as we read them, where it tells us here that when we were yet without strength, and we were ungodly in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And when we read here that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about this aspect of eternity. Think about this aspect of God who loved us so much. He knew us before we were even born. He knew what we were going to do by the time we got to where we were when we needed to know Jesus Christ. When we were yet without strength. yet When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we see the expanse of God's love and grace over a period of time. Because because God in His eternal nature, who is over all, uh, you know, in in His eternity, of course, it transcends our time continuum. So it doesn't matter when we came to know Christ. At that moment, Christ died for us. Do do you understand that? If you don't, it's okay, because I don't either. It's hard to understand this aspect of eternity and how it affects us in this life as it did 2,000 years ago in Paul's life when he wrote this. Much closer to the time of Jesus walking on this earth. Yet for us, we were saved when we were saved because Christ died for us then, for now. We can't lose sight of what a wonderful gift this is that Christ has given to us in salvation through what He did for us. God exhibited His love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. We didn't live back then, but we live now, yet Christ died for us now. And for those who need Jesus, He'll die today. He he has. He only died once for all, but what He did then affects us now. never forget that that's the love of God I wish we could say that's the extent of the love of God but God's love never stops and then think about this the fourth point that we want to make here is that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world in other words he lifted away and carried off our sins he lifted away and carried off our sins It means to bear in behalf of one as one's substitute. Consider just for a moment something that took place on the Day of Atonement. And I want to bring this up because what we're dealing with, of course, is the work of the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of of men. But something happened on the day of Yom Kippur, Leviticus chapter 16, that we want to look at very quickly here. On this issue of lifting and carrying away. Because after making an end of atoning and reconciling the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, actually having also uh, uh, forgiven the sins of, 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 of Israel because of the shedding of the blood. There was a lot of blood shed on the day of atonement. But something else happened after this, and that was that a live goat was brought out. And this is what took place. If you look at Leviticus chapter 16, verses 21 and 22... Leviticus 16.21 is a long verse we'll, we'll look at two slides here but it says that Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat now Aaron of course the brother of Moses uh, was a high priest and he representing the people the children of God or the children of Israel he laid hands on the head of the goat what was going on with that? We find that to be a transferring the sins to the goat. Notice, as it goes on to say, Aaron shall lay his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel. It doesn't stop here. Of course, it's it's a lot longer verse. But it begins by confessing over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel. So he's confessing all the iniquities of the children of Israel. Then in the next slide it says, In all their transgressions, in all their sins. Iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Do you think all of their misdeeds were covered? Iniquities, transgressions, which are trespassings, you know, against God and against God's people. In all their sins. Every sin. Everything is covered. Putting them upon the head of the goat. And shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. So set out into the wilderness. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. What did that mean? But That the sins were placed on this goat. Do you know what this goat is called? The scapegoat. Have you ever heard that, that uh, term? This is the scapegoat. The gold was taken out and released in the wilderness. The scriptures tell us that when God forgives us of our sins, he casts them as far as east is from the west. Now, has anybody ever measured how far east is from the west? Maybe I should ask the question, can anybody measure how far east is from the west? There are no east poles or west poles. There is a north pole and a south pole, and that could be easily measured, right? But not east and west. You see how wise our God is? He casts our sins as far as east is from the west. Now, if we had points, an East Point and a West Point, right? There's an East Point here in El Paso. How many of you live in East Point, uh, go to school at East Point? Anybody? How many of you went to West Point in New York, you know, the military academy? But that's not what he's talking about. How far is East from the West? Can't measure it. Sins are gone. But remember this, that the Day of Atonement even continues today without the blood sacrifices, of course. But they still every year have to seek forgiveness from God. In the sense of coming to that day, considering the sins of the year, and laying them before God. The Jewish people. Jesus lifted away and carried off our sins that's what it means when he says the Lamb of God taketh away the sin of the world now let's not forget that the word sin in our text the sin of the world is in the singular form it really is in the singular form because sometimes you get cards you know or whatever behold the Lamb of God will take away the sins of the world no it's in the singular form hamartian singular in other words, all the sins of the world are taken and bundled together into one package, as it were. And that whole package of sin, that whole bundle of sin, most of us are familiar with bundles nowadays, right? We can get a bundle from Direct TV, or a bundle from Time Warner, or we can get a bundle. You know, you can bundle up this and that with Progressive Insurance, or you can bundle up at Toyota. They'll give you a good bundle for your new car, whatever. But that's not what I talking about. Let's talk about sin. Taking all the sin of the world, bundling it all together as it were, that whole package of sin, all the sin of every person who has ever lived, was laid upon and born by Jesus Christ. All sin. Now please understand, this is not to be considered universalism. As if, okay, well if Jesus bore the sins of all the world, then everybody's okay, everybody will go to heaven. no. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish because if you don't believe in him you shall perish. But God hates sin that much. But people still hold on to their sin, you see. As believers in Jesus Christ we don't hold on to our sin. It's been given to the Lord. We might discover something else that we do in our lives. We take it to the Lord. We say, Lord, God, forgive me of this. I didn't realize I had this anger in me or I had this problem with me. The Lord says, okay, I've already taken care of it on the cross. Every sin. Past, present, future. We still discover it. But we just give it up. If we confess our sins, remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's what Jesus did when he took all the sin of the world. Now, listen, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, John again refers to this. He says, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Now that's great advice. Yes? Yes? I tell you right now, he says, I write to you that you sin not. Don't sin. And if any man sin, if you do happen to sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, what does that mean? Our advocate is our attorney. Amen. That's a wonder he's a wonderful attorney to have. Be thankful that our attorney, you know, tells us sometimes, you know or or I should say, be thankful that our attorney doesn't tell us sometimes. He says, Listen, you just sinned too much. I'm not going to represent you anymore. Would you go find another attorney? Right? Does, has Jesus ever told you that? Because what other attorney would there then be on that level? Uh, I'd hate to tell you. Do you understand what I'm saying? But we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord, uh, the, the Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He is the propitiation. In other words, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem come and the old is all passed away there will be no more sin to deal with because he's taken it all and lifted it away so don't hold on to any of it when we discover things in our lives let's give it unto the Lord and he very lovingly says I've taken care of it go and sin no more As we move on into the next two verses, John the baptizer continues to give testimony of Jesus. And as he does, he he actually brings up a dilemma. If you look at verses 30 and 31, it says, This is he he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me. Now this is dealing with the preeminence of of Christ uh, and supremacy. He says, He was preferred before me, for he was before me. But then he says, And I knew him not. But that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come, baptizing with water. So, let's remember a few facts here. John the baptizer was six months older than his cousin Jesus. John um, was the son of uh, of Zacharias and and Elizabeth, a relative of, of Mary. Mary went to go visit her. And uh, when she came to visit her, she was already with, with the uh, child of the Holy Spirit. And she comes into the presence of Elizabeth, who was, who's bearing John in her womb. And when Mary approaches, John leaps. So remember that. Okay. John was six months older than his cousin. Yet he says, but he was before me. So John not only recognizes his preeminence. As Messiah, but he also recognizes his pre-existence. Because John was older, as far as a relative is concerned, born physically a few months before Jesus. But John had acknowledged the preeminence of the coming Messiah there at that meeting with Elizabeth, and now he's acknowledging his pre-existence. He is before me. But the dilemma was that even though he had been chosen and called to announce the coming Messiah to Israel, he didn't know who he was, really. I mean, he would have known that Yeshua was his cousin, he would have known that. But John was so much out of the picture as far as in his adult life, and maybe they could have at times seen each other as uh, as as children, but uh, they didn't have things like Facebook nowadays where, you know, you could say, well, I can uh, let me friend my cousin, you know, and I could see a picture of him. And then I could know when I see him later, I'll know who he is. He didn't have that the luxury as, as many of us have ourselves today. So he didn't know who he was. Go, you know, you go back to the, the day uh, meeting with the, the priests and the Levites. Uh, you go back one day. For example, here in John one twenty-six. just go back to one, uh, verse 26. Where it says, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, whom you know not. He says, you don't know him. You know him not. You, you don't know this one. And, and he uses, it's interesting, because John uses a root, the same root word to describe their ignorance that he uses about himself as well. I knew him not. The same root word. So he, he might have known who Jesus was in so far as being a relative is concerned, but the likelihood is that they had never met in their adult years. That's, that's possible. But the point is that he would not have known or recognized the Messiah if he saw him on his own. He had an assurance. He had a definite assurance to make manifest the Messiah of Israel. That was his assurance. But he needed a special revelation from God. So on the strength of that assurance that he had, he continued on in his mission. You know, in other words, he didn't just stop and say, well man, I don't, I don't know who this guy is and I don't know who, Lord, I don't know who it is. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait. Just wait. No, he can, he continued on his mission. What was his mission? Well, he called the nation of Israel to repentance. He baptized his converts in the Jordan. So he was doing everything until God gave him the revelation about pointing forth the Messiah, because he was there to prepare the way for the Lord. So when you look at the last three verses of this text today, you see that the dilemma really is solved. In verse 32 it says, John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending. So now God the Father is telling him, because it was God the Father who sent him, He's telling him, when you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, The same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw. In other words, he saw this happen. And and bear record that this is the Son of God. The Lamb of God the Son of God, the Word of God, all of these indicators of Messiah. John has now borne witness of the Messiah, Jesus. Now, it is believed by many that when Jesus showed up to be baptized by John, uh, some six weeks earlier, they, they, they believe it was around that, that time, before the events here of John chapter 1, so the baptism of Jesus would have taken place already. And, and by the way, Jesus' baptism is not recorded by John as in the other gospels, so we have only this record of what took place, because it did take place. If you read the, the other gospels, they, they certainly will give you the indicated, indications of, of his baptism. But God had given the baptizer here the long-awaited sign. It had been made known to John that he would recognize the Messiah of Israel by seeing the Holy Spirit descend on him and remain on him. Descend on him and remain on him. Now this is very critical for us to understand. But first of all, our thoughts might take us back to the story of Noah and the flood. The storms in that time that had brought all of the water upon the earth from below and from above. The storms had passed, and the billows subsided as the ark rocked on the waters. Noah opened the ark's window, and he sent out a dove. That dove, like the Spirit of God, who on creation's morning hovered over the face of the deep, found no place where it could land to rest, and so it returned to the ark. Since the fall of man, the Spirit of God has moved on the face of the waters, hovering as it were over a fallen ruined race looking for one on whom he could rest the ages and the generations rolled on kingdoms came and went and not one child of adam's family could the spirit find to give them rest and then jesus came now for 30 years the spirit of god was with him because when jesus came he came with a with the spirit Everyone else, you know, was born spiritually dead, but not Jesus. He came as a full package, as it were, full of the Spirit. And then at his baptism, the Father gave this benediction. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. With that, the dove of God came down and abode upon him. Finally, the Spirit had found one on whom he could rest. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the Holy Spirit would come upon individuals and enlighten or empower them for a time. Certainly Moses was one who had the Spirit of God upon him, and David and Joshua, and we could name many others. But there were, the, there were some upon whom the Spirit had departed as well, like Saul. So, at times, before the birth of Jesus on this earth, the Spirit came and the Spirit went. The Spirit would come and manifest Himself among the people when Moses and Aaron would lead the congregation in worship around the tabernacle. But then the children of Israel in in time and historically would come and go from God. But the Spirit came to remain on Jesus. And that is important for us as believers today. Because John had been told by God, the one who sent him, the Father, told him that when the sign of the dove would occur, the person so marked out by the Spirit's coming and presence would be the one who would baptize by that same Spirit. You see, cleansing by water is one thing. But the cleansing produced by the Spirit of God is of another order entirely. You see, we know that later at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the baptism with the Holy Spirit brought in a new and living way, a new order as it were. Look, look, Listen to the words of Jesus in Acts 1 verse 5. Jesus said, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And the evidence of that was in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 of Acts. It says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, <coughs> excuse me, they were all with one accord in one place. 120 of these disciples of Jesus, including the mother of Jesus, Mary, all in this upper room, as it were. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, And then those cloves of fire above the heads appeared in verse 3. And then we're told in verse 4 that they all began to speak in other tongues and what they did because it says the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak in other tongues and began to proclaim praises unto God. A mighty moving of the Holy Spirit upon The seed which became the birth of the church. That was the beginning of what we can call the church age. But we can also call it the age of the spirit of God. Because you see because of Jesus upon whom the spirit remained. Was now with them and in them. And because of that the spirit remained upon them as well. Now the spirit of God was upon the church. And would be upon the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit, the Spirit of the living God. And the church is, is, is strengthened and nourished and fed and led by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit will not depart from us. And so John the Baptizer proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Son of God. The the prophesied Davidic King was God's Son. Second Samuel seven verse thirteen, the whole of the chapter is dealing with, of course, that David wanted you know David wanted to build a, a, a house for the Lord. Instead, the Lord built David a house. But David wasn't to build a house for the Lord because of his being a man of war. Yet his son would build a house for the Lord, his son Solomon, whose name comes from the root word Shalom, meaning peace. Again, what a difference that the house of God would be built by peace. But here in second Samuel 7:13 it says, "He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, pointing to Jesus the Messiah in the line of David. Not to anyone else, but to Jesus. We're told in Psalm 2, verse 7, I will uh, will declare the decree, The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son, This day have I begotten Thee. Again, this this blessed union of the Father and the Son. Uh, Again, another reference, I believe in, in Psalm 110, where it said, The Lord said to my Lord, The Lord said to my Lord, That's Father to the Son. Yet there's only one Lord, you see, because there's only one God. Tremendous unity of the Godhead. But the title, Son of God, which John calls him there in verse 34 of our text, goes way beyond the idea of obedience and messianic king to that of Jesus' essential nature. In this fourth gospel, this title is not applied to believers Because they are called children while the son is used only of Jesus. There are two words for children and for sons. And so one term is only used for Jesus. He is the son of God. The great work which John the baptizer was sent to do was nearing an end. And here is the climax in verse 34 of our text. I saw and bear record that this is the son of God. Did John really know that? Now he did. He really did know that. Now the question is, do you know that? Do you know that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you know that? Do you believe it? Do you trust him? Have you trusted Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for yourself? Because if you've never trusted him before, I would encourage you to come to him now. And trust him with all your heart. I encourage you to do that today. And not to wait. Because you see, Jesus can come at any moment for any one of us or for all of us as it were. And it would be good to get ready. And to be ready. and Not to linger any longer in what you think or what you don't think. And what somebody might have told you outside of what the Word of God says. But what you've seen already is laid before you to trust. And it just takes that moment to say to the Lord. Lord, I believe now that Jesus is the Son of God. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with my heart that he's risen from the dead. It's a step of faith. Take that step today. I leave you with the words of Jesus himself when he said, Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest. Unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. You don't have to wait till we finish studying the gospel of John. I encourage you not to wait for that. Because that could be a long time. (laughs) But I can encourage you that at the end of this study. If you haven't received Jesus today. would be a wonderful day to do so. And God has given us so much in his word. To point us to who Jesus is. And what he's done for us. Shall we pray? Father, thank you once again for your presence among us. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the purity of your word to our hearts. May we take hold of them. May we stand upon them. May we continue to grow in them. And may we trust you in them until the day of Jesus Christ. Father, in... In the power of your Holy Spirit, work upon those hearts that are here today that are struggling in their lives, struggling to take a hold of things uh, properly and rightly, struggling to uh, just not sink in the confusing world around them. Establish, Lord God, foundations upon which they can stand, the foundation of faith, the foundation of hope the foundation of your love, the foundation of truth, the foundation of your undeserved favor, upon which they can assuredly stand. We are so so thankful, so blessed for your love for us. It amazes us more and more. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.